So this is uh, an ongoing series of teachings that I give on Friday nights on a text called The Easy Path. Um, it's not actually so easy, but it could be harder. Um, <laughs> so uh, we're at the point um, of learning about meditative stability and wisdom, and so that's the... the um, topics we'll be dealing with this evening, and also, as coincidentally happens, for the whole weekend, because that's the part where we're at in His Holiness's text as well. So we always start with a little bit of um, watching our breath to settle our mind, and then I'll lead a very short meditation on the Buddha, and then from there going go into some requesting verses that are in the text, and then after that, um, you know, giving the talk. So some of you may be new to the practice that we're doing. Just do the best you can, and slowly you will get used to it, and you'll learn more. Okay? So let's start just by uh, letting the mind settle down, and putting our attention on our breath. Face in front, visualize the Buddha made of golden light, sitting on a lotus and a flat sun and moon disc. He's looking at you with acceptance and compassion and is surrounded by all the other holy beings. Buddhists and Bodhisattvas. And we're surrounded by all the sentient beings, ones we like, ones we don't like, ones we don't know. But they all want to be happy and to be free of suffering. And so to bring that about, we imagine that we're leading them in taking refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and in generating the virtuous thoughts that the different recitations bring up in our minds. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain Buddhahood in order to benefit all sentient beings. I take refuge until I have awakened in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. By the merit I create, by engaging in generosity, and the other far-reaching practices, may I attain 
purifying all negativities and bringing with all the enlightened realizations. Taya ta
light and nectar absorb into your body and mind and into those of all sentient beings. They purify all your negativities and obscurations accumulated since beginningless time. And the light and nectar especially purify all illnesses, interferences, negativities, and obscurations that interfere with correctly training in meditative stability and in the three types of wisdom. Your body becomes translucent, the nature of life. All your good qualities, lifespan, merit, and so forth, expand and increase. And think that in particular, a superior, superior realization of correct training and meditative stability and in the practice of the three types of wisdom has arisen in your mind stream and in the mind streams of others. We've done the beginning stages of the path, uh, contemplating our precious human life, all of its potential, how difficult it is to have this human life, how uh, incredibly valuable and worthwhile it is. And we've also contemplated um, our own mortality the fact that we won't live forever, which makes us really uh, look at our lives and say, well, what's important? And what we come up with when we say what's important is improving the state of our mind, getting ourselves out of this cycle of unsatisfactory experiences, this cycle that's governed by ignorance, anger, attachment, pride, jealousy, and so on. And we discover what's important in our life is to care for others, 
and in fact care for them more than we care for ourselves. And that it's actually possible to do that in a very pure way. So that uh, when we see the, the potential meaning in our life, you know, then it makes us ask ourselves, well, how am I spending my time? And if we're spending a lot of time just in, you know, trivial pleasures, going here, going there, enjoying all the pleasures that last for a short period of time, but not much longer, then, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, what do we have to show for it? We have a, well, it used to be you had a scrapbook with all your pictures, now you have a phone with all the pictures of your life. But, and it's all just nice memories, but nothing really more than that to take with us. So, uh, if we want to really have a meaningful life, we have to look beyond just our own pleasure, our own short-term um, pleasure, and seek to do something that is really, uh, really meaningful with our lives. Okay, so we've... Um, seen that our life can be highly meaningful, but we also know we need some guidance to make it highly meaningful, because on our own, just looking around for what to do, uh, you know, there's, we don't come up with much, kind of like the blind leading the blind. So we turn to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha for refuge, and we listen to the Buddha's teachings, and we think about them, and we contemplate them, and we take them to heart and practice them. And the first thing we practice is, um, you can either call it getting your act together or stop being a jerk. Okay? <laughs> they have the same meaning. The technical language is observing the law of cause and effect. Okay? But it boils down to getting our act together and uh, stop being a jerk. In other words, stop doing things that harm other people. Stop doing things that harm ourselves. Yeah. And uh, so taking a really good inventory of, you know, what we do, how we act, how we speak, what we think about, and learning to discriminate, you know, and discern what is virtuous and what is you know, just an expression of negativity. And so understanding the results of acting negatively and understanding the beneficial results of acting with good ethical conduct. And so in that way, getting our act together, you know, and that's why I said, it's getting our act together and stop being a jerk. Because, you know, when we kill others, when we steal their stuff, when we sleep around, when we lie, when we use our speech to create problems between people, when we uh, speak harshly to others, when we gossip. You know, kind of, it, we're acting like jerks, aren't we? Yeah. So most of the world acts like jerks. I mean, what's a what's newspaper about? It's telling you all the jerky things that people have done. You know, isn't it? It's all about 
you know, who got arrested and who's getting sued and who's, you know, got convicted and who got off the link because they knew, got off the hook because they knew somebody and, you know, it's uh, the newspapers all about basically people acting negatively and harming other sentient beings and in the process damaging themselves because when we harm others we're putting these you know destructive imprints in our own mind and then we're the ones who will experience the result of our own actions yeah it's not just i can harm somebody else and then it doesn't have any lasting effect on me now, it does have a, a long-term effect on me yeah and so if we care for ourselves then we also have to care for others because if we don't want to experience painful situations ourselves, then we have to abandon negative actions, destructive actions. And destructive actions also happen to be ones that, that uh, harm others. So you see kind of benefiting ourselves and benefiting others comes to the same point in the same way that stopping to harm ourselves and stopping to harm <coughs> others comes to the same point. Yeah, so when we really, uh, you know, start paying attention to uh, our actions of body, speech, and mind, can sometimes be a little bit of a shock. I know it was for me. It's like I thought I was a pretty good person until I started looking, and it's like, oh, wow, I do everything just thinking about myself. I don't know about you. Anybody here? Morning tonight? Who do you think about first of all? Me. Yeah, my happiness, my suffering, what I want, what I like, what I don't like. And the whole world's got to revolve around me. Because I'm the most important one. And uh, that view actually limit, you know, thinking like that about ourselves limits our, our human potential and gets us in a whole bunch of messes. Yeah, so this, this self-centered thought that pre pretends to be part of us and pretends to be our friend isn't actually who we are. It isn't part of us. And it's not our friend either because it makes us so self-centered that we're in pain. Yeah, when you think about it, yeah, when you're in the most pain, isn't it because all your energy is focused on yourself? Yeah. I'm so lonely. I'm so bored. Nobody loves me. Nobody appreciates me. I'm unhappy. Right? <laughs> yeah? And what we get out of bent out of shape with, yeah, when it happens to us, we don't think twice when it happens to somebody else. Yeah, somebody criticizes me, national catastrophe. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst thing that happened today. Forget what ISIS is doing. Somebody criticized me. That is much more serious. 
somebody criticizes us, then the whole rest of the day we're bummed out. Oh, my friend said this, my friend said that, oh, oh, oh. oh my goodness. And yet, if somebody criticizes our friend, we say, oh, that's too bad, and we forget about it. Yeah? Do you worry about other people's problems in the same way that you worry about your own? Forget it. Other people's problems are boring. But my problems are so interesting. I can think about them again and again and again and again. You know, like playing the old record. You guys are, all you, all you youngins, you don't know what a broken record sounds like. You know, when you grew up with the dinosaurs like me, you know a broken record. It goes and it plays the same thing again and again and again. You know? And that's kind of what we're like with our own problems, thinking about them again and again and again. And we never get bored with our problems, but our friends' problems really get boring, don't they? I mean, how, can, how much can you hear the story of your friend's fight with her boyfriend? It's like, okay, you know, you had a fight, get over it, you know, let's talk about something interesting. But my fight with my boyfriend, oh my God, oh, this is terrible, you know, this is like, yeah. And we play the same video, once, twice, fifteen hundred, five million, and fourteen times, you know. And we know the outcome. We know all the lines. And we play it again and again in our mind, don't we? How come we don't get bored with that rubbish? Really, when you think about it? It's really rather boring. At a retreat, sometimes I've done it, where everybody had to write down, you know, their problem of the retreat that they were focusing on. <laughs> focusing on meaning getting distracted by. And everybody had to write down their problem, put it in a bowl, and then you had to pick out somebody else's problem. And whenever you got distracted, you had to think about their problem. <laughs> yeah. Couldn't think about your own. You had to think about their problem. That's very interesting. People got pretty bored by it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so, um, you know, in this process of, of creating a spiritual life and progressing along the path, you know, we have to shed some things, you know. We have to shed our destructive actions. We have to shed the self-centered mind. Yeah. We have to shed our anger and attachment and confusion and pride and jealousy. Yeah. What we don't shed is our wisdom. Yeah. We try and develop that. We develop our love and compassion and generosity and so on. Okay. So, uh, you know, just having this kind of overview you know, is very, very helpful um, so that we're clear about what we're aiming for in our spiritual practice. 
that we might want to get out of this cycle of existence caused by our ignorance, our mental afflictions, the actions that they are created under their influence. And we also want to go beyond even the state of our own liberation and attain full awakening where we will have all the skills needed to be of the greatest benefit to other living beings. And so that becomes uh, our meaning and purpose in life, our motivation, to really uh, tap into the deepest layer of our Buddha nature, the deepest layer of our extraordinary human potential, and develop it and call it forth and use it for the benefit of sentient beings. Okay? And so that is, is our ultimate aim in our practice. And in order to attain that state of full awakening or Buddhahood, then there's different qualities we need to develop. Yeah? And so uh, we've been going through the six uh, perfections, the six far-reaching qualities that reach far, that take us across the ocean of cyclic existence. Yeah, so the first one was generosity. Then we have ethical conduct. Fortitude, developing a strong mind in the face of harm, in the face of suffering. And joyous effort. And that's where we stopped last week with joyous effort. So the fifth one is meditative stability. So I think all of you have been in touch with Venerable Sumten in arranging to come here. So Sumten means meditative stability. So you've been talking to her. (laughs) 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 Yeah, so Sum is mine and Ten means firm or stable. And so that's an important quality for us to develop, the ability to concentrate, to have a stable mind. Okay? So on a very gross level, we need a stable mind, just in terms of you know, not being such an emotional yo-yo. Yeah, because we're pretty much emotional yo-yos, aren't we? Are you an emotional yo-yo? One day happy, one day miserable. This morning, I feel so good. This evening, I feel rotten. You know, one day happy, next day fed up. One day in love, one next day in hate. (laughs) You know, for the same person. Uh, You know, we're emotionally unpredictable, aren't we? So we need on a very gross level to stabilize our mind and get our moods a little bit more, you know, smoothed out. I remember uh, during a public talk, somebody asked his holiness Dalai Lama about this and said, but if I don't feel really high and I don't feel really low, then what's the use of it all, you know? Kind of... I, I've got to suffer to appreciate being happy. And as Holiness said, well, maybe 
but actually I prefer to have a steadier mind. Yeah? Not such great highs, not such great lows, more of a steady mind, because then my mind is more flexible, then I can do more with my mind, then I'm not, you know, subject to these wild ups and downs. Yeah. So we, we need some kind of meditative, some kind of emotional stability that way. By smoothing out our strong attachment, smoothing out our anger, and so on. And then beyond that, there's a deeper level of meditative stability, yeah, which is the you know when you're at the this mental stability or mental concentration, where you can put your mind on one object and not have it tour the universe. Most of us now, when you were doing the breathing meditation, could, could, could you keep your mind on the breath? Yeah? Anybody who didn't get distracted even during those few minutes of watching the breath? Yeah, I think most of us got distracted, didn't we? Yeah, thinking about the past, thinking about the future, something itches, something tickles, we hear a sound outside. Yeah, we remember something that somebody said to us 20 years ago that you haven't thought about since then, but all of a sudden it pops in your mind. Yeah. So to develop some concentration that will enable us to focus our mind on what is wholesome and what is important. That's why it's called some tense, stable mind. Yeah, keeping it stable in our meditation. Okay, so in, in the verse that uh, I read at the beginning about meditative stability, it was talking about different kinds of it. So I wanted to go through that a little bit. So it was talking about... Um, well, let me just lay, lay this out in general. We'll go into it uh, tomorrow in more depth. But when we... There's, um, there's our human realm. There's a realm called, first of all, the desire realm, where the beings in it are occupied by desire. Yeah? Your, is your life mostly about desire? I desire this, I don't desire that. Yeah. So our human realm is occupied a lot by desire, in particular regarding external objects and people. Then there's a level beyond that in cyclic existence called the, the, immater the material realm or the form realm. And this is a, a place where beings are born when they have different levels of single-pointed concentration. Or should I say the initial levels of single-pointed concentration. And then there is a realm beyond that called the immaterial or formless realms where people have, you know, also single-pointed concentration, but they're really, really deeply absorbed in their meditation. So much so that they don't have gross uh, bodies. 
That's why it's called immaterial or formless realm. So in the form realm, yeah, you have the first meditative stabilization, the second, the third, and the fourth. Yeah. In the Pali term for this is jhana, J-H-A-N-A. The Sanskrit term is dhyana, D-H-Y-A-N-A. And the Sanskrit term dhyana, meditative stabilization, yes, actual term samtan, meditative stabilization, in Chinese is Chan, in Japanese is Zen. So that's where the name for the Zen came from. Okay? Meditative stabilization. So there's these four realms, four dhyanas, and there's an access realm before you get into the first one. This is just a very general layout. Okay? To enter the access realm, you have to uh, be able to focus your mind single-pointedly on a virtuous object and have um, what, what they call um, uh, physical and mental bliss and physical and mental pliancy. Okay? And then as you, you first get the access, then you get the first, the second, the third, the fourth, and the concentration is deepening as you go through the fourth. Then from there, going upwards in terms of the depth of concentration, you have the four formless absorptions. So the first one there is uh, infinite uh, space, then infinite consciousness, nothingness, and then the peak of samsara. Yeah. Okay, actually those last four, the infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, and peak of samsara, they're very such deep levels of concentration that a being born there simply knows they're born, and then they're so they're absorbed in their meditative concentration so deeply for their entire life that they aren't really aware of anything else and then they're aware when they die. Yeah. So um, those steps, those stages are actually too refined to be able to do anything useful with your mind because you're so sunk in the object of meditation. Whereas in the four uh, stages of meditative, meditative stabilization you have single-pointedness, but the mind isn't so absorbed. I mean, it's absorbed and it's stable, it's not wandering to other things. But those states are better for generating wisdom. Yeah. So from a Buddhist view, the whole point of generating single-pointed concentration like this is so that we can put it together with wisdom and use that to eliminate the ignorance that is at the root of all of our confused life and suffering. Okay. So this deep concentration in and of itself isn't an end because you could get born in these states of meditative absorption for a while due to the karma that you created in attaining those those meditative states while you were a human being. 
But when that karma runs out, then that rebirth's finished, and kerplunk, down you go, you know, to our desire realm again. Okay? So having those, um, those levels of attainment, even when you're a human being, are valuable if you use them for something useful. If you just get absorbed in what they call the bliss of samadhi, and you stay, you know, in your meditative state, enjoying the bliss, but you don't develop any wisdom, then, you know, after the karma created by that is over, then you're back where you were before. Okay? So we really want to make sure that we use uh, whatever concentration we develop to develop our wisdom. That's incredibly important because it's only the wisdom that cuts the root of cyclic existence. Nothing else will cut it. Yeah, not even great compassion. Okay, so when we talk about, in that verse, it was saying from the angle of its natures, meditative stabilization, or meditative stability, there's the mundane and supra-mundane concentrations. So the mundane concentrations are those by ordinary sentient beings who have not uh, realized the nature of reality directly. Okay? And then the supra-mundane um, concentrations or meditative stabilities are ones that are by an Arya or a noble one, somebody who has realized the nature of reality, the emptiness of inherent existence directly. Okay, so we have mundane, super mundane, yeah, concentration that will bring about more rebirth in cyclic existence, super mundane, which because it's together with emptiness or with wisdom of emptiness will lead us out of cyclic existence. Okay, so according to its nature, there's, there's those two. From the angle of its features, there's meditative serenity, okay, special insight, insight, you don't need the special, serenity, insight, and then the union of the two. Okay, so you may have heard about uh, you hear people often use the Sanskrit Pali term, shamatha. Okay, so shamatha means serenity. Uh, that's how I translate it. Other people translate it as uh, quiescence, calm abiding. There's a few other English translations, okay? But that is, is the mind that can stay on a virtuous object as long as we want to. Okay, so that's the serenity part of it. Then the insight, you know, as it said, the second, the second kind when it's divided according to its features, is um, the insight that is able to analyze and understand things in a deeper way. Okay, so serenity emphasizes 
what we call stabilizing meditation. In other words, the meditation you do to keep your mind focused on one object. And special insight or just insight meditation emphasizes analysis that is probing deeper into the nature of the object. Okay. So when we talk about analysis in Buddhism, it doesn't mean that you're intellectualizing and going through some kind of, you know, college textbook analysis or something. Um, the term more, when it says analysis, it's referring to a mind that is like a probing awareness that can really uh, discern things in a very clear way without getting confused. So very useful to have this kind of analytical mind. Because if you look, part of our problem, you know, people ask you, well, what's ultimate reality? What's ignorance that keeps you bound in cyclic existence? I don't know. You know, like we hear words, but we don't really know what they mean. Or we can give the verbal definition, but if somebody says, what does that feel like inside of you? We can't find that mental state inside of ourselves. Okay. So we need that kind of probing awareness that can identify things and that can also check up. Is this a correct conception or is this a conception that is totally bananas and off the wall? Yeah. Is this some, am I perceiving something that is accurate or am I, what I think I'm perceiving something I made up in my mind and don't even realize it? Okay. So that kind of discerning, discriminating, analytical mind is quite important. And then the unity of the two is when, because see, usually when, when you're meditating, if you're developing stabilizing meditation, trying to keep your attention on one object, then if you analyze where, and sometimes analysis is, seeing what's the relationship between this and that, then the analysis disturbs the stability. Yeah. And other times when you're doing an uh, analytical meditation, if you try then to do stabilizing meditation, then that interferes with your ability to analyze. So the union of uh, shamatha and vipassana, of serenity and insight, is when the analysis itself creates the stability in the mind. So this is something quite an incredible uh, attainment when what used to be something that interfered with your stability now brings about the pliancy and the flexibility and the, the deep concentration. Okay, so those three are, are talking about serenity in terms of its features. And then from the angle of its functions, there's again three. The meditative stability that abides in physical and mental bliss. Okay, so that's the um, mind that has developed, you know, full pliancy 
where, whereby the, both the body and the mind are pliant and serviceable, and where they're both very blissful, so that you can really, you know, abide in your meditation without getting distracted. Okay, so that's one uh, type of meditative stability according to its functions. The second is the meditative stability that serves as the basis for all good qualities. So this is, again, the, the deep kind of concentration that enables you to develop love and compassion and other good qualities because it's only when we can really keep our mind on something for a long period of time that we can actually integrate it, you know, in our being. It isn't a case in meditation of perceiving something like this and then everything's changed. It's we have to, you know, generate a quality and then let our mind dwell in it, abide in it, stay in that, you know. So develop compassion and then keep the mind focused on that compassionate feeling for a long time to integrate it or with love or, you know, with wisdom, anything like that. And then the third, according to its functions, is the meditative stability for accomplishing sentient beings' welfare. Okay, so this is, you know, again, um, I think this one talks more about developing some supernormal powers due to, the, due to having single-pointed uh, concentration. And these supernormal powers enable us to be of greater benefit to others. Okay, so actually they're called super super knowledges. Yeah. So there's five super knowledges. One of them, the first one, is called supernormal powers. So these are things like making your body very small, making it big, making it invisible, making one body into many or many into one walking on water, going under the earth, flying in the sky without the airplane. Um, you know, these kind of physical supernormal powers which enable you to, um, because you're doing it with a proper motivation, to be of greater benefit to sentient beings. And then there's um, clear audience where you can hear Sounds, you know, beyond your what your ear, your physical ear can hear, you know, which enables you to hear teachings that are being given, you know, uh, universes away. You can still hear the teachings, and your connection doesn't die on you, and uh, you know, Skype doesn't get doesn't flake out, and okay, you're. Uh, your iPad, iPod, or whatever it is, doesn't run out of juice in the middle of a Dharma talk, so you don't have those problems with clear audience. And then there's clairvoyance, where you can, uh, or what they call divine eye, where you can see things that are happening in other places in the universe. Again, very helpful if you want to be better to sending beings. Then there's um, uh, knowing your past lives. Okay, which also is helpful um, because when, if you're trying to be a benefit to sentient beings, when you know your past lives, then you can see like which teachers you've had a strong karma connection with in previous lives, and so then you can 
find those teachers again this lifetime, or if you've been guiding sentient beings in previous lives, you can find those students again and again be a benefit to them in this lifetime. Uh, and then, uh, then there's the one of knowing the death and rebirth of sentient beings, which, uh, you know, knowing when sentient beings are dying, when they're being born, what kind of karma they have. You know, you know sentient beings' dispositions, which ones are inclined towards uh, developing wisdom, which ones are inclined to developing uh, bodhicitta. Yeah. And you know the best way to guide these different sentient beings. Some sentient beings want teachings, some want more meditation, some want funny stories, some want biographies, some want to do recitations, some want to do, um, you know, read sutras, some want to do, you know, deep meditation and silence. So just having the ability to, to know different sentient beings' state of mind is very, very helpful. Okay, so that's another kind of uh, meditative stability that uh, is developed along the path. And that particularly is developed when you, um, when you can attain the fourth dhyana. Yeah. All of us? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Diana, what is the most quality that you need to work with? Is it compassion, wisdom? You mean when you have that kind to of... Develop, to develop this. I know you need to work on your concentration, but is this compassion that supports this? You well, need to really have a lot of compassion to be able... Because you can screw up a lot of people if you don't... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you mean if you have these kind of powers, yeah. yeah. And you don't have compassion, yeah, you can screw up. You can screw up yourself, too. Yeah, yeah, as well as other beings, which is why it's so important to have the proper motivation when doing them. And why they say that um, serenity in and of itself is not the final aim. You know, it's, it's because the serenity, when we put it together with other aspects of the path, enables us to do really good things. There's a, an analogy they often use of, of how serenity uh, fits in the path. Okay, so they say it's kind of like, well, they use the example of somebody who's going to, uh, with an axe, hit, you know, uh, strike down a, a tree. But it, it probably goes for a chainsaw as well. Okay, so you... Uh, yeah, chainsaw people tell me you need to you have need to stand firmly on the ground, right? Yeah, and then you need to know exactly where in the the tree you're going to cut, and then you need to have the power in your arms to direct the chainsaw or the axe to that place and keep it there. Okay. So these three parts, you know, to cutting down the tree, the, the analogy is the tree is, is like our ignorance, yeah, all of our misconception mind. And we have the three higher trainings in ethical conduct, concentration, 
and wisdom that help us overcome this ignorance. So ethical conduct is like having a very firm stance on the ground. Your feet are firmly planted. You're not, you're not wobbling. So ethical conduct gives you that, that kind of stability. Yeah. Then you need the, you know, you need to know on the tree what point you're going to hit. So that's like the wisdom, the higher training in wisdom, knowing what the object to be negated is in the meditation on emptiness, what it is that doesn't exist, that we're going to hit at and investigate and prove doesn't exist. And then we need the, you know, the, with the chainsaw, you need to hold it firmly at that exact space. And that's like the concentration, the meditative stability, yeah, that keeps the mind focused on, in this case for wisdom, you know, the object of negation, so that you can really negate it and abide in the emptiness of inherent existence. Or if you're developing compassion, that concentration keeps your mind on that feeling of compassion for sentient beings. Yeah. And the thing is that when the mind can abide firmly and calmly on something, then it's like, you know, whatever that quality is or whatever that, that wisdom is, it really becomes a part of you. Okay? So I think that analogy makes it kind of clear, doesn't it? I think it's, I think it's quite a good analogy. Okay, so for developing um, meditative stability, yeah, we need to do so in a peaceful, isolated place. It's going to be difficult to do it in your apartment or your flat, you know, your home, uh, with the kids crying and with the television and with, you know, everything else. Um, you can improve your concentration, but to attain stupid single-pointedness in that situation is difficult. But still, it's good to improve our concentration. Yeah, and we will be working on that this weekend. We also need guidance from a teacher, so we need to hear the teachings on how to cultivate meditative stability, what kind of object you use, um, how you approach the meditation, what are the hindrances that interfere with serenity, what are the um, countermeasures that you employ to overcome those interferences. So you need to study and learn what those are and remember them. Um, the, the mind of serenity perceives the object in a very fresh and clear way without laxity and without excitement. Laxity is a mind that lacks clarity, you're on the object, but it's not clear. And excitement is a mind that is about to go off into an object of attachment. Okay? So we need to, you know, work at generating these certain qualities of mind. And we'll get into that more this weekend. Okay? So let's just pause here for a moment, see if there's any questions before we go on to wisdom. Yeah, two questions online, okay. Uh, a stable mind brings more flexibility. How does that work? Uh, 
<laughs> How does a stable mind bring more flexibility? Because we think of flexibility as you go here and you go there and you're totally unstable. Um, that's not what flexibility means here. Flexibility means here serviceability. You know, you can use your mind for what you want to use your mind for. Yeah, you're in control of your mind instead of your mind controlling you. You can direct your mind to whatever object you want and it's going to stay there. So it's flexible in the sense that you can direct your mind where you want it to go and put it there and it's going to stay. So is there a God realm in Buddhism? What's the difference between a God realm and a heavenly realm? And how does that relate to the form and formless realms? Okay, so um, it, it, a lot of that question, you know, God realm, celestial realm, it has to do with vocabulary. Sometimes we call the... Um, the beings who are born in the form and formless realms, we call them celestial beings. You know, sometimes translators use the, the term heavenly realms. But if you use the term heavenly realms, it doesn't mean the same as in a theistic heaven. Yeah, it just means heavenly in the sense that it's a nice place to be and it's beyond our world with all of its confusion, you know, with uh, all of our desire objects and things like that. But uh, all the uh, different rebirths in Buddhism uh, are transient they, and they don't last forever. So don't get Buddhism confused with some kind of theistic, um, you know, proposition of things because it's entirely different. Yeah. If the uh, immaterial concentrations are uh, too refined to be practical or useful, what in the thirty-seven verses it says you want to cultivate concentration that goes beyond the four formless realms? Yeah. When it says beyond the four formless realms in the thirty-seven practices. It means beyond samsara, into nirvana. Okay? So, of course, Buddhists and Bodhisattvas have cultivated all those absorptions. They, they can go from one level of absorption to the other. But the, to go beyond the, the uh, formless realms means to have combined your concentration with wisdom and go to nirvana. Um, when you were talking about Chan and Zen, are those other words for jhana and dhyana? Yes. Okay, but so they're not really related to a specific level of those. No, no. No, no. It's just showing that the Chan and Zen traditions and they emphasize meditation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not specifying specific levels of attainment or anything. And then does is single point of constant single point of Concentration in another synonym for shamatha, or is it a subset? Well, it's yeah. It basic very often when we say single pointed concentration, we're referring to serenity, to shamatha. 
But the, the word concentration can mean many different things in different contexts. Mm -hmm. Because concentration is a mental factor, actually, that we have right now. Mm -hmm. It just isn't fully developed. Then they also use uh, concentration, like when we read the Heart Sutra, the, you know, the Buddha was in the concentration. And, so the, knowing, yeah. So these means, it's a, mean a state of meditation focused on a particular object. So the word concentration means different things in different contexts. Mm -hmm. oh. Last one, sorry, just to make sure I've got this right. The access concentration, right? Mm -hmm. Not realm. Yeah, just access concentration. That's what would lead someone into the form realm. Yeah. 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 When when you attain serenity, the attainment of serenity is simultaneous with attaining the access concentration. Mm -hmm. I was just confused about something, so I'm thinking maybe I heard wrong. The last power you mentioned about um, being able to help sentient beings because you know their karma and rebirth, mm -hmm. but that that's attainable in the fourth dhyana. I thought only a Buddha could. Oh. <laughs> okay, um, so we say that only a Buddha can know all the specific details of people's past lives, future lives, and everything. That's only the whole complete picture only a Buddha can know. But, you know, people with deep concentration can know parts of that. Okay, yeah, because it's a skill that develops gradually. It isn't like... You're dumb, and then, you know, three countless gradients later, you blink your eyes and you know everything. Okay, with the, with the, we'll get into that as we, you know, in the, in the weekend, what we do. Basically, to enter the first jhana, you have to have suppressed the five hindrances and develop the uh, the different jhanic factors. Yeah. Mm -hmm. To um, for the five super knowledges, you get you acquire them in these various stages of deep meditative stabilization. But to benefit sentient beings, you actually can come out of those states and manifest them. Yeah. Just when you're out of those. Well. You, you may use some of those, those supernormal powers when you're in meditation to know it. Or when you emerge from your meditation, you still have like a hangover from it. So that, that can help you to know things. Or the physical things about, you know, walking on water and flying, whatever. Yeah, that yeah, you're not, in, you to, you're not in meditative stabilization. Like yeah, that. it's like, yeah. Okay, uh-huh. one quick question. Uh, I'm having some difficulty. When you say entering a jhana, I someone think I'm going some physical uh, place. That is not the No, case. no. You're not going into a physical place. You're going into a mental state. Yeah. Yeah, all of this is completely done right here. Mm -hmm. So um, when you're developing these different stages, are you actually going into the form realms, or is it that you no. create? It would be if you only focused on that, you'd be creating the karma fit in okay. the next life entering the form. Yeah. Or the form 
Okay, so the formless realm, on one hand, is a realm of being, where beings get born. On the other hand, it's a state of mind. The beings are born in, this, in the form realm because when they were human beings, they, they attained a certain level of meditation. So you, as a human being, can have a human being body, but in deep meditation, have a form, form realm mind. That doesn't mean that you pick up and go to the form realm wherever it is. It just means your level of concentration is a form realm mind. And that creates the karma to be born in that realm if you don't develop the wisdom that takes you out of samsara. And then uh, I'm curious about if you en end up being born into a formless realm, can you actually, when you that karma expires, end up um, losing that concentration ability? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. so it's not a level of attainment that you can... Everything in samsara is transient. And they say that we've all been born in the form and formless realms before. So we've all had really deep levels of concentration. But our problem was that our motivation was just to stay in the bliss of concentration. And so when that karma finished, you know, like Sir Rinpoche said, when he got to the top of the Eiffel Tower, the only place you can go is down. So, you know, when you get to those states, when the karma runs out, the only place you can go is down. Yeah. So that's why they say that all of samsara is unsatisfactory. That even if you t attain those very deep states of, of concentration, without the wisdom, those states are not, you know, going to bring you lasting happiness. They're still dukkha, unsatisfactory by nature. That's quite important to remember because they say that, like at the Buddhist time, a lot of the non-Buddhist wanderers, you know, their goal was to develop those deep states of, of meditative absorption. And in fact, the Buddha, after he left the palace, he went and he studied with two teachers uh, first, and they both taught these levels of practice, you know, in the jhanas and in the formless realms. And the Buddha attained those, but he saw he was still in samsara. So that's when he went off and he left those teachers. Yeah? Um, I'm trying to think of how this relates to the Bhumis. Um, to the Bhumis? Yeah. Uh, the Bhumis, the Bodhisattva Bhumis are something else. Yeah. Okay. The, be, the Bodhisattvas who are on those Bhumis, They've developed these levels of concentration, okay? But the bodhisattva bhumis are talking about stages of accomplishment on the path. Um, and once you are accomplished on those levels, you don't backslide. Yeah, because you've already realized emptiness at that point. Okay, then let's go on to wisdom. We have a little bit of time left here. Okay. So in the, the verse that I read, uh, you know, when we were meditating, it talks of three kinds of bodhisattva's wisdom. Okay. 
So the first is the wisdom realizing the ultimate. So that's the wisdom realizing the emptiness of inherent existence of all persons and phenomena. And we will get into that over the weekend. And for people online, we will get into that a little bit later in the text, what that means. Okay, but this is the wisdom that helps us cut um, the, the ignorance. And ignorance is the root of our cyclic, you know, cyclic existence. So that's the most important kind of wisdom because it understands the way things really exist. Yeah, not the way they appear, not the way they seem, but how they really are. And then the second kind of wisdom is wisdom of more conventional objects, things that you have to know in order to benefit sentient beings. So uh, in ancient culture, they would talk of the five arts or the five sciences. I'm not sure if I can remember all of them. There was poetry, grammar, astrology, medicine, and uh, one other one. (laughs) Okay, but what it's basically referring to is to have a general um, good education so that you can communicate well with people and so that you know something about uh, the world and something about society and how people function, how they think. Okay? Because on the bodhisattva path, if you're going to benefit sentient beings, you have to know something about their world and you have to be able to communicate with them. If you just come in and, you know, your, your mind is, is on emptiness and you say everything lacks inherent existence, you know, let's meditate. And, and the student says, well, could you explain that some more? Can you give us some examples? And you don't know anything about the world, you know. So you can't even say it's like a reflection or it's like a TV screen or, you know, so it's, it's helpful to have some worldly knowledge, not because worldly knowledge is, you know, so entertaining and special, but because it gives you the ability to, when you teach and share with sentient beings, to be able to communicate and give examples in ways that they can understand. Okay? Um, and then the last one, was the wisdom to, of how to benefit sentient beings. Okay, so how to accomplish the welfare of sentient beings. So again, that, that's our ultimate purpose, to accomplish their welfare. Not easy. Um, you know, to accomplish the welfare of sentient beings, we have, we have to be able to attain a, a, a Buddha's form body. Yeah. And so there's two types of Buddhist form bodies. Buddhist form body is a body that a Buddha manifests in in order to teach the Dharma. So some of those are called enjoyment bodies or resource bodies. That's the kind of uh, appearance that a Buddha takes in the Pure Land to teach the Arya Bodhisattvas. And then uh, an emanation body, which is the form 
that a Buddha takes like Shakyamuni Buddha to appear in our world with us who have very gross senses. Okay, so to really work for the benefit of sentient beings, we have to be able to develop these kind of uh, bodies. And a bit, you know, in the bodhisattva stages, you know, you develop the ability to emanate different kind of bodies and become different kind of things in order to benefit sentient beings. But then also to have the wisdom of, you know, just what to do to benefit somebody. Because I think we've all been in, in the position where we want to help and we don't know what to do. Have you ever been in that position? You can see somebody needs some help, you want to help, you don't know what to do to help them. Okay? So this kind of wisdom, you know, helps us cut through that confusion and see, you know, what kind of thing can be helpful to this person. Is it good at this particular moment to speak gently to them or is it good to speak forcefully? Is it good to teach them this topic right now or is it better to teach them that topic? Okay? So to, to know all those kinds of things. Okay, so that's the six perfections, the six far-reaching practices. Actually, the, the six, they usually teach six, but actually there's ten, and they say that the last three uh, can be merged into the sixth one, the sixth one being wisdom. So, I mean, the last four. So let me just tell you what the last four are. The seventh one is skillful means. So, you know, knowing how to benefit sentient beings. The eighth one is, um, the Tibetans translate it as prayer, but it's not prayer. It's like a very strong aspirational resolve, you know. When, uh, those of you who know about the Amitabha practice or the Medicine Buddha practice, these different Buddhas have made certain uh, aspirational resolves, like vows, of how they're going to benefit sentient beings. So that's what this eighth one is. The ninth one is power. Yeah, knowing how to have power over your own mind and the power to influence others in a way that will help them. And then the tenth one is called exalted wisdom. Yeah. So special kind of wisdom. Okay, yeah? Can you explain, I was going to ask actually, if skillful means was the same thing as the knowledge of the wisdom of helping other sentient beings, like how are those two? Yeah, I, I forget right now the whole list of different kind of skillful means. But these, um, yeah, it fits quite well with the knowledge to benefit sentient beings. Yeah. Probably not exactly the same thing as it though. Can you say something more about what exalted wisdom means? Exalted wisdom? Yeah, so exalted wisdom, that's Yeshe, that's this one over here. Okay? <laughs> and that one's, that one's ethical conduct. So she's the, yeah, okay. Um, yeah, so yes, she is, it again is um, exalted wisdom. It has different meanings in different situations. Yeah, sometimes it refers to 
the realization of emptiness, sometimes it can refer to other kinds of wisdom. Yeah, it's used a lot in Tantra, but there it has a different kind of meaning. So this is is one warning. Just because you know the meaning of a word in one situation, don't think that that's what the meaning is in all situations. You know, when we, we know that with English, that, you know, one word can have more than one thing. But when we learn Buddhism, we want one word to mean one thing and not anything else. But that's not the way it is. Are there different terms in Tibetan? Yeah. No, 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 it's one term in Tibetan. Same word. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, well, like wisdom, you know, many different kinds of wisdom. It's one term in Tibetan, one in English, but many different terms. Concentration, many different meanings. The word bliss, many different meanings. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Well, you we talk about the difference between wisdom and I guess also in Tibetan it's Shara, right? Yeah. That can be a flip okay. Now Shara and Yeshe, the difference between them, is very confusing. Sometimes they're synonymous and sometimes they mean different things. Sometimes we also translate, well we do translate Shara very often as wisdom and Yeshe as exalted wisdom. Yeah. But so Shara sometimes, you know, is the wisdom realizing emptiness. Yeah, it's not the intelligence realizing emptiness. In different situations, sheriff can be translated as intelligence. Okay? But it doesn't mean worldly intelligence. It means dharma intelligence. Because you can be very intelligent in a worldly way and completely dumb and ignorant in a dharma way. Yeah? So it's two very different kinds of intelligence. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Find the word that we used. Okay, yeah, this is it. You were talking about it seems like this is something that we might know of in our own experience. I wondered if that was the case. Awareness. Mm-hmm. I was bringing probing awareness up in terms of uh, when we talked about stabilizing meditation and analytic meditation. Right. Um, well, I'll just ask in my own words. Oh, yeah, here it was. The basis of all meditative stability here is that serves as the basis of all good qualities. I was thinking, wondering if that also could include something that maybe most of the people in the room would understand, which is, you know how um, when you're kind of on automatic, mm-hmm. you're really not concentrating so much on anything virtuous. You're kind of not there in a certain way, a certain part of your mind. And then most people, we just stop and we kind of like tune in. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of like a gross level of what's happening there for that kind of, it's a, it's a time where most of this experience that, you know, I can touch in with my aspirations, with my motivations, with this and that, versus just kind of having the mind distracted all the time. Um, no, they're different, because here we're talking about states of serenity. Mm. 
Where you're at single point. Oh, in there. Yeah. Okay. okay. Well, that's not yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you're talking about is slowing down and tuning into your aspirations and yeah, paying attention. Yeah. Oh, I guess that's more like introspective awareness. Yeah. And, and mindfulness of, of your yeah. precepts, of your values, yeah. of your motivation. Can you elaborate on the difference between, or like how, what very strong aspirational resolve, how that differs from belief? It seems like you can't have a much more strong aspirational yeah. resolve than that. So okay, so Bodhi Mind or Bodhicitta is you are focused on attaining enlightenment for the benefit of sentient beings. Okay, so that's your overarching one. Then, w when you are on the bodhisattva path, you, you know, on, in the sutrayana, you have to establish a pure land. You know, your own Buddha land in which you get enlightened. And, as part of that, what many bodhisattvas do is they have these very strong aspirational resolves. So, um, we have Amitabha has what 48, 48 vows, you know. Uh, Medicine Buddha has is it thirty six. I can't remember. Um, yeah, what actually is a good example? I mean, um, when we talk about when we do the King of Prayers, which we're going to do at the end of this, that actually has ten aspirational, uh, you know, resolves in it. Okay, there's the seven limb prayer plus um, paying homage and reverence and then following um, the example of the Buddha Dharma Sangha and then benefiting sentient beings. So those are the extra three. And so those are said to be, you know, ten, uh, the ten aspirational resolves of Samantabhadra. Okay, so... Um, you know, some some of the bodhisattvas say, you know, if sentient, you know, when sentient beings hear my name, then they're going to be cured of such an illness. Or so when sentient beings recite my name, it will help them to purify a certain kind of karma. So they make these these very strong intentions to that connect them to sentient beings in a certain particular way, so that. Uh, it makes you know that that practice of that particular bodhisattva more more potent. Yeah. So it's more specific kind of intentions. Yeah. So and and so you look at it. You know, each of us um, probably has uh, you know certain uh, leanings one way or another to how we would like to to. Uh, help sentient beings, yeah? So maybe when you get to be a bodhisattva, you're going to say, you know, may I, you know, may I take care of all the social activists so that all their, um, you know, good work can be brought to fruition? Yeah, something like that. Okay. May the spiritual teachers who lead me on the sacred path and all spiritual friends who practice have long life. May I pacify completely all our inner hindrances. 
be stable and their virtuous actions spread in the ten directions. May the light of those songs teachings dispel in the darkness of the beings in the three worlds always increase.